Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Indianapolis, Indiana. Welcome to the show, Spencer Gray. Hey, Victor. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you here. Now, Spencer, you've been at this game a little while and you've been scaling your business, but before we dive into the details, maybe give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I've had entrepreneurial drive since I was in my teenage years. My son, my parents found a business and were relatively successful at that. And so I always had the idea of building a business would be a part of you know my future, but I wasn't really sure what that would be. I got a little bit of taste for real estate, finishing up high school, flipped a house with a friend, continued to flip houses. And then I started a couple of businesses, a few in the media field. In, I worked in recording studios, worked for a couple of media companies, and eventually started another business, which I then sold in about 2015. We were focused on distributing and brokering hops for the craft beer industry sold out of that business and really took a full deep dive and concentration into the acquisition of multifamily assets, large multifamily properties, specifically in the Midwestern US. We've been doing that ever since. So we started around 2015, partnered with some really great individuals, some great companies. We've got almost 9,000 units across our portfolio right now. We've done just about a billion dollars worth of transactions since that point. We're just continuing to move forward and grow in the right way. Oh, I love that. That's such a great story. And you haven't been out at all that long. So I think that's a testament to both having great partners as well as learning how to scale the business properly. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's one of the issues that a lot of people encounter. They start out thinking, you know, very much like the technician, if you follow the EMF school of thinking that they can do it all. When in fact, what they really need to do is just like Ray Kroc, when he bought the McDonald's locations from the McDonald's brothers, didn't focus on hamburgers. He focused on the systems and processes to scale the business, to grow McDonald's into the billions. Yeah. We figured out very early on when we were trying to go out and buy some apartments, we figured out that one, we weren't really going to qualify for the type of financing that would be most accretive to the investment and which would leave us to really just non-optimal financing strategies. So that led us into having conversations with operators who were you know, further along than we were, had some experience and having the conversations of potential partnerships. So it really started out of means of necessity. But then once we realized we could really leverage their systems, their operations, and scale in a way that didn't take away our bandwidth, that would allow us to focus on what we were the best at, but we knew what we could do, but really just leveraging our partners' systems and scaling, I guess, you know, through leverage with our partners. And then over time, as we got to a certain scale, we could add certain systems internally that wouldn't ideally not be duplicative of our partners. But you know, at some point, any partnership, there may be some parting ways and you can't be totally reliant on who your partners are at one given time. So slowly adding the right systems in place kind of at the right time, trying not to get too ahead of ourselves and over our skis, but trying to plan for the future and not trying to you know, play catch up as we grew, because we were growing relatively quickly, adding you know, thousands of units just a single year, a few times. So trying to do it the right way. At any given point in time, there's usually one item that's a constraint, that one critical path item that's holding things back. It might be a particular skill set. It might be investment capital. It might be 
just the management bandwidth to get things done. I expect that once you knocked down one of those dominoes, another one appeared. How did you navigate through that? Yeah, exactly. Well, and I feel like we have a couple dominoes that are falling down right now that we're still currently navigating. You know, the first aspect was really our asset management side as we were, you know, bringing on more investors, bringing on more assets into our portfolio. We really need to open up a position where we were really focusing on asset management because I had been doing most of the asset management, you know, when we really started the company. And so that was one of the you know, first dominoes or one of the first pieces that we put in place. And then we kind of wrapped acquisitions into that role as well, because we were fortunate enough to find an individual who had an equal amount of asset management as well as acquisition disposition experience. But then as we continued to grow, there was more of a need to add additional investor relations personnel to stay on top of communication with current and future investors because we were just being you know spread relatively too thin and then as you know those key positions are being put in place adding key personnel under those employees to kind of continue to building out the systems and the key roles kind of each step of the way and i imagine that somewhere along the way there were probably a few mishires or perhaps people that had been with the company since inception yeah were that outgrew the organization or the organization outgrew them how did you deal with that you know, we were fortunate that we didn't have a lot of permanent hires that ended up being kind of mishires. It was more of we had quite a few virtual assistants and just remote personnel that weren't necessarily full time. And some of those just weren't the right fit. And I mean, especially in virtual assistant roles, it's a great way to bootstrap and to scale without, you know, really having to have the full liabilities of full time employees. But it's, it can be difficult to find that right key because you don't really have consistent culture with a lot of those virtual assistants, a lot of that, those outsourced personnel. And it takes a lot of just kind of getting through and a lot of trial and error until you can identify some of those key personnel that you know, may still be working, working virtually, um, but they can still be a core member of your team. So luckily, we haven't had too much turnover from our um, actual in-house employees, you know, although you know, we have had some like any organization, but it's, there's much more of a uh, churn on our virtual assistants and outsourced personnel. Well, it's very difficult to build sustainable systems with rented talent. Exactly. And I found that often when you're dealing with, I'll say low-level employees, you can often delegate work, but it's difficult to delegate responsibility. Yeah. So it always comes back to you. And the leverage that you get is quite limited because you're not getting things, you're not getting tasks to completion. Yeah. And I think that there is an understanding, especially from the virtual assistants or the outsourced personnel, they know that this isn't necessarily going to be a long-term career. They're not going to stay with this company and they don't see necessary levels of advancement. So it's very much more transactional. And I don't think that's a bad way to look at it. But you know, that being said, you know, we have had some great relationship with individuals that have you know, really matured over time, but it's still different than from of our actual you know, key employees. One of the reluctance to hire often is, boy, do I really want to add that expense? And one of the fallacies often is that when you hire the right employee, they actually make you money. They don't cost you money. Yeah, exactly. So how do you how did you get to that tipping point? Uh, well, it was a little bit of a leap of faith because one of the first hires, we weren't really sure how we were going to you know pay their salary. I mean, we had some reserves that we knew that we could cover their salary for a certain period of time, 
but it was kind of that first hire that did when we saw an increase of revenue, increase of productivity, we did a couple more deals than we had done in the past. A big light bulb went off saying that, okay, not only was it that fear not realized, but we were able to grow the company so much more by putting that key person in there. Um, and to your point, yeah, you're not, you're actually going to make more money by bringing the right person in and growing. It's very difficult to increase profits to grow a company by not actually growing the company. And so by bringing people on, bringing people to the team, expanding the bandwidth, theoretically you should be able to get more done, more accomplished and, and move the needle. And if it's not, you really have to question, why are you going to do that? Not that there aren't support roles that maybe it doesn't end up, you know, you're not going to see top line growth. There's still important positions. It's going to add to the future of the company and ability to scale. But that first hire when, you know, we weren't sure, you know, okay, how are we going to cover the salary? How is it going to work out? You know, it was still the best decision that we made to you know go forward and bring that person on. Yeah, I love that. Often when people are getting started, the tendency is to give equity in order to bring someone into the organization. And when you don't have a lot of spare cash flow, equity is one of the cheapest things to give away. But then as you're established, as you're successful, equity is the most expensive thing to give away. And it's actually cheaper to hire. When did you make that transition? Yeah. So, um, and you described it exactly right. That was the process that we went through. So we did give up some equity on our first hire or our first large hire. And part of that was that, you know, they were taking a leap of faith with us as much as we were kind of going out and taking a leap of faith, hiring them and bringing them on. Because even though we had a track record, we were doing a lot of business, we were still relatively unknown. And to you know, leave a position where you, know, you have some tenure and we weren't looking for an entry-level position, we wanted to have someone that could you know, really be accretive to the team and was really was more knowledgeable than we were in certain aspects. Um, you know, we did include equity on projects, but we made it you know, conditional. We didn't leave it open-ended and for forever. Because as the business grew, as it developed, we may have to make room for other projects. And we made it on a deal-by-deal basis. It wasn't equity in our entire corporate entity. It was more of projects they were associated with that they were going to see an impact in and that they really had a hand in seeing the success or failure of that project. Where you are right now, the marketplace is full of opportunity. When I look at it, I literally see an all-you-can-eat buffet of opportunity. And how do you decide whether something is something you want to look deeper at or just give it a quick pass? We're living interesting times to say the least, as we're just we're in a transition period. You know, COVID, the recession accelerated us years into the future and really kind of moved trends ahead. And whether we're taking, speaking of inflation or migration or you know, household formation, it's difficult today because when you underwrite just on fundamentals you're really not looking at the full picture of you know what prices are going to look like in the next few years because in the past you can underwrite okay you know 3% organic rent growth and you know 2% expenses that was you know always kind of the go to basic uh, assumption but we're living in times where that assumption may not be the case at least over the the next several years and we're in a higher growth environment inflation is picking up we're already seeing the producer price index increasing significantly, input costs are rising. And, you know, it, it's much harder to predict the long term. But, you know, I, we can say with a high degree of certainty that we are going to see a continued price movement. And so I guess the challenge is still trying to buy on 
fundamentals and actuals and making the project pencil and be reasonable using today's dollars and using somewhat of today's and maybe yesterday's assumption, but then challenging that and comparing that with assumptions of future growth and forward growth and just an acceleration and trying to find a happy medium. Because even if though we can be convinced that we're going to see rents increase significantly in the future, it's another step to bring that project to an investor and say, we're confident of inflation and price growth, but you know it's still speculation. So we're trying to find a happy medium of projects that pencil with fundamentals and just using previous assumptions, but really have significant upside when we factor in future growth. And to what degree we're factoring that future growth into our actual you know, buying decision, I think it has to come into play to some degree to be competitive, but it's how much do you want to speculate and how much do you want to just rely on just the fundamentals itself? Well, at the end of the day, we're collectors of real hard assets yeah. and we're essentially shorting the dollar. That's all we're doing Yeah, because uh, when inflation kicks in, it has the effect of wiping out purchasing power for people on fixed income. It has the effect of wiping out savings and it has the effect of wiping out debt. Exactly. And so if that price increase is coming to the equity side of the equation, you're now on the right side of history. We're basically just shorting the dollar. And the more you can do of that, the better off you will be unless there's a great reset and everything gets thrown out the window and all the rules change and governments confiscate all the money and confiscate all the assets. That's always a possibility. Yeah. But unless that happens, you're going to come out on the right side of history. No, I agree. And, and that's something we look at as you know what that great reset might look like or what that, that major black swan event that really is just going to wipe out anything. And there's essentially no asset outside of possibly some crypto assets that you could really be in, um, crypto, gold, silver, to just some you know real stores of value. There's nowhere else that you can go. And if we do see the continued devaluation of the dollar, which is clearly happening, you know, print $6 trillion. We'll probably see a couple trillion more here in the next year. The dollar is going to continue to devalue. And where do you want to have your capital allocated and to which assets? And we look back over the past 10 years, you know, being in a relative deflationary environment, still seeing you know, asset prices increase and you know, the multifamily sector you know, prosper relatively well. That's still in a deflationary environment where you know, multifamily and real estate really outperforms in more of an inflationary environment. And so I think that we're going to see a pretty interesting time over the next few years. It's just there probably will be some unintended consequences for all this new kind of economic theory that's taken place and all this action, what that will be, what kind of malinvestment, we don't know. And technology could continue to be such a deflationary force that it equals things out. But you know, if we could predict the future, it'd be easier to make money than just uh, buying and investing in apartments. Absolutely. <laughs> I love the conversation. Definitely kindred spirits in terms of how we're looking at the business. I love it. Spencer, if people want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Um, so you can just search Gray Capital. You know, on Google, we'll pop up. But our website is GrayCapitalLLC.com. We put out a great newsletter, GrayCapitalLLC.com/newsletter. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or just shoot me an email, Spencer at GrayCapitalLLC.com. Fantastic. Spencer, thank you for the perspectives. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Spencer at greatcapitalllc.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. And talk to you again tomorrow. 